And our passage this morning is taken from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And then we'll jump a little further in chapter 9 to verses 18 through 26. Matthew 9, 9 through 13, and then 18 through 26. Hear now the words of Matthew the Evangelist as they tell us the good news of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, for your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. And he said to them, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Bethel Church, thank you for having us this morning. Jennifer, my wife, and I are glad to be with you. We may be strangers to you, but you're not strangers to us. We've known of you for many years during the strange season when we were all locked away at home. Jennifer and I would often tune in and worship with you at Bethel. You just didn't know we were there. And we keep track of you through... James and Beth McManus, who have been friends of ours for many years, some of our favorite people along with their kids. We're grateful for their friendship and ministry, and we're grateful for the way you have loved them all these years. So thank you for letting us be with you this morning. When my oldest daughter, Riley Jane, was a kindergartner, one day we got a call from the school And the receptionist on the phone said, if you would, please drop what you're doing and come to the school quickly. There's been an incident, which is never a good phone call for a parent to receive. And Jennifer and I did just that. We stopped what we were doing. We came from separate places. We met at the school, and we were seated in the office, and we waited nervously and anxiously. 
And after a time, the principal came out of her office, a tiny drill sergeant of a woman, Mrs. Thompson, and she summoned us into her inner sanctum, and she seated us at a small conference table. And she said to us, I don't quite know how to tell you this, Riley Jane has been baptizing her classmates. And I said, I'm sorry, I don't feel like I heard that right. No, no, you did. You heard that correctly. Riley Jane has been baptizing her classmates. I, I I don't understand what you're saying to me. I'm sure you don't. What happens is this. The children come in from recess. And Riley Jane insists to be the first in line to get her drink from the drinking fountain. And when she's down her drink, she steps aside. And the next child in line steps up to get a drink. And while that child is drinking, Riley Jane slips her hand under that child's mouth and catches some of the water in her cupped hand. And then, all in one smooth motion, she slaps the child on top of the head and says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then she sends that child away. And as she puts it, she invites the next child to step forward and receive the Lord. And I said, I'm so sorry. I don't quite know what to say. I'll talk to her. Would you talk to her? Would you please? Because you understand, we're not against anybody's faith expression. But we can't have children dropped off at school to learn the alphabet and their color wheel and their numbers and send them home newly baptized. You understand? We don't do that here. I understand. I'll talk to her. And so, as I spoke with Riley Jane, I tried to say, I appreciate your missionary zeal and your evangelistic further, but no more baptisms at school. And it was a confusing conversation for the both of us. But I'm happy to report that the number of baptisms at Lakewood Elementary School following recess sharply declined after that conversation. The problem with baptisms like that, water fountain baptisms, is they're missing something. They lack something. And what they lack is a call to come out of a former life and to come into a brand new life, to come into the life of Jesus, to come into the life that is in Jesus. A skeptic might ask at this point, legitimately, reasonably, Why would anybody follow Jesus in the first place? Which is a fair question. And the only answer is, the called one is convinced that Jesus has more to give than I can ever hope to find on my own. That what I ache and what I hunger for most is found best And most fully in who Jesus is. And following Him, all my former emptiness is filled and satisfied. And that's the only explanation there is for why someone like Matthew would get up and follow Jesus. Matthew has a great job. He's set for life. Matthew's a tax collector. He's on the payroll of the Romans. And collecting taxes for Rome, Matthew over-assesses. He over-collects. Once Rome gets its stated tax rate, the tax collector was allowed to keep the rest. 
And everybody knew that this was the game, and there was nothing anybody could do about it. That was the way it was. So Matthew overtaxed, and the people overpaid. But for all of his wealth, for his mansion on Park Avenue, and his beach house on the coast, and the Chagalls, and the Monets, and the Picassos hanging on the walls in his homes, for his handsome investment portfolio in spite of all of Matthew's wealth, Matthew was impoverished in his soul. He was beggarly in his heart. He was a spiritual panhandler, and he knew it. He could audit his own spirit. So when Jesus passes by and calls Matthew to leave it all and follow Matthew doesn't hesitate. After all, what good does it do if you have all the wealth of Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, but spiritually you're as poor as a sharecropper's dirt? Matthew scribbles out a letter of resignation. He tacks it to his tax booth door, tosses the keys of the tax booth to the centurion, assigned to stand bodyguard, And he leaves it all behind. And he never looks back. Matthew does what the rich young ruler should have done. Matthew is what the rich young ruler should have been. He liquidates. He divests. And laughing and crying and running after Jesus to catch up, Matthew feels eternally wealthy in a way that doesn't show up on quarterly earnings reports or bank statements. And by the way, this is the only explanation for the ruler who comes looking for Jesus in verse 18. He hopes to find more in Jesus than he can find on his own. What's significant about the ruler is he does exactly the same as Matthew. He leaves everything he has in exchange for everything Jesus has. The ruler surrenders by kneeling before Jesus. Your rule is greater than mine, in other words. This is a man of power, by the way. This is a man of influence, a man who gets things done. But he can't get this done. This is a man who makes things happen, but he can't make this happen. His daughter has died suddenly, and he's distraught, and he has no rule here. So, sobbing before Jesus, he says, you are able to rule over this thing. Kissing Jesus' feet, he says, Jesus, if you will touch my daughter, she will live. You have power over death. You rule with life. Touch my daughter, please. And this is the only explanation for the woman who steals a healing in the street as Jesus is on his way to raise the dead girl. She also knows there's more to be found in Jesus than she has ever found anywhere else. And by the way, I think she is the most beautiful story of all these three. She's a woman so low, she doesn't even approach Jesus. She sneaks up on him. She's a woman so low, she doesn't even ask Jesus to touch her. She touches him. She's a woman so low, she has nowhere to turn. She has no other option and no other hope. From the lowest places comes the most remarkable faith 
Because what else is there? Faith is fullest when we are empty and when we are desperate. It's not always easy to leave an old life, though, and to follow Jesus in His life. Sometimes it's ridiculed. Sometimes it's contested. Sometimes it's opposed. I was at a conference of pastors years ago, and we were introduced to a Navajo pastor, a man named Peter Graywolf. And through an interpreter, he told the gathering, the whole assembly, his story. In his former life, Peter Graywolf had been a shaman, a medicine man, a conjurer of spirits. People would come to his cabin in the forest, and they would pay him, and he would mix up some kind of healing potion or poultice. They would pay him, and he would cast a spell, set a curse, or hope to break a curse. And one night, there was a knock on his cabin door, and it was an old friend who had come to pay him a visit. They spent some time catching up, and after a while, the visiting friend explained to Peter that things had changed for him. He was a follower of Jesus now. And he explained to Peter Graywolf all that Jesus had done for him. And somehow, this shaman, this medicine man, this conjurer, felt that Jesus is exactly what he was missing, and Jesus was precisely whom he needed. And right there with the friend, Peter Graywolf prayed and repented and believed and began following Jesus without ever setting foot outside of his cabin. They sat up late into the night talking and rejoicing and praying. Finally, it was time for the friend to leave and he left Peter Gray Wolf a Navajo Bible. And Peter stayed up even later into the night rejoicing, praying, trying to read in his Bible though he didn't know where to look or what to read just yet. The next morning, he woke up still happy, still beside himself, still feeling like an entirely brand new person. And he walked out of the door of his cabin, his heart still rejoicing. And in the branches and the trees of the clearing surrounding the cabin, owls were perched in the branches, 10, 15, 20 of them, which was not a good sign. Because in native belief, the owl is the bringer of death. It was the spirits. They were not happy that Peter had shifted his devotion. They had come to settle accounts. And through the interpreter, he told us, he was terrified, he froze with fear. And then he remembered, he belonged to Jesus now. He was a follower of Jesus. So if the spirits had a claim to settle with him, they would have to take it up with Jesus. And he did the only thing he could think to do. Grey Wolf walked around that clearing and he looked up into the branches and he told the owls perched in the trees everything his friend had told him about Jesus the night before. And when he ran out of things to tell them, he offered to go inside his cabin and get his Navajo Bible and begin reading to them from it. The first sermon Peter Grey Wolf ever preached was to the spirits of darkness and death. And one by one... They flew away, and they never came back. 
But it always follows that shape. We leave an old life and we move into a brand new one. But that doesn't mean it's easy. As freeing as it is, it isn't easy. And sometimes it meets with open hostility. Like the Pharisees who don't want to let Matthew leave his old life and begin a new one. They turn up at Matthew's gate and they complain about this gathering at Matthew's house. For the Pharisees, there is no forgiveness. There's only diligence and effort and achievement. They happen by Matthew's house on this occasion. And of course, there are more tax collectors and sinners gathered with Matthew there because here is a rabbi who will accept them He welcomes them out of their sin instead of grinding them down in it. Here's a rabbi who calls them into a new belief and a brand new self and a new road to walk. But you see, for the Pharisees, they are the keepers of the old order. They make sure the old structures remain intact. And you can't just leave your life of sin. That diminishes all their years of painstaking and devotion. They want Matthew and the others locked in a permanence of sin and shame. And so they say to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with sinners and tax collectors? He must be unclean himself. He must shrug at uncleanness. It's a nasty trick. They're trying to shift Matthew's shame to Jesus. And Jesus, overhearing it, replies for himself. And he says to them, go look into Hosea the prophet. See what Hosea says, where he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, says the Lord. And you determine what it means. And he doesn't explain it to them. But what Jesus is implying is all your law keeping, all your law enforcement, all your performative and public uprightness, all your showy sacrifices. And still, God is interested in none of this because you do not resemble Him. Yes, He is holy, but from His holiness, He is merciful and His children share this trait of mercy. And by the way, Bethel, just so we're clear, when we talk about mercy, what we mean is it's a holy interruption. It interrupts somebody's trouble or tragedy with the surprise of good news. It's an interruption of someone's self-sabotaging sin or smear of shame with the surprise of good news. Actually, the New Testament word for mercy comes from the same word from which we derive olive oil, believe it or not probably because olive oil was poured into an open wound to soothe it. It was a healing accelerant. Mercy is the whole reason, by the way, that Jesus is at this dinner party associating with these unacceptables. They are not locked in their sin and uncleanness. They are not stranded in their former status. They are not sentenced to their prior conditions And just to drive the point home, Jesus goes on immediately to touch two more unclean people. The dead little girl, he takes her by the hand, 
touches an unclean, dead little girl. And on the way to her house, an unclean woman who has been bleeding openly for 12 years touches him. Now why on earth would Jesus surround himself with defilement? A sinner's banquet, the house of the dead, and 12 years of bleeding. Why would he do something so scandalous? There's only one reason. To show that the unclean don't make Jesus dirty. Our uncleanness doesn't transfer to him. It works in the opposite direction. Jesus' cleanness transfers to us. Jesus makes us undirty. And that's how he explains it to the Pharisees when he shows them the unsavory guest list at Matthew's dinner party. The physician has come to make the sick well. That's what he says to them. And that's what he says to the woman in the street when she touches the fold in his garment. He wheels around and he smiles at her and he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. And that's what chases the professional mourners away from the dead girl's house. They laugh at him when he walks in. But when he walks out holding the little girl by the hand and she's smiling up at him, the flute players stop their playing mid-toot. And the the tambourine players stop their rattling. And the professional mourners stop their shrieking. And they trail off mid-wail and they all go slouching home. Now, I should tell you, I didn't just pick these verses out of the blue. It's always a dicey thing when you're invited to be a guest preacher at a church because you're never quite sure what to preach. I don't know these people. I don't know what they're up against. I don't know what they're facing. I don't know where their pastor has been leading them over recent weeks. It's always something of a gamble. So when I'm not sure what to preach on, I always go to the common lectionary. The lectionary is a calendar. It's a Bible calendar that spreads Bible passages across every day in the year. It's set up on a three-year cycle. So if someone were to read through the lectionary over a course of three years, you'd read almost the entirety of Scripture. It's an editorial arrangement. The Bible passages are arranged thematically in some cases. In some cases, they're arranged seasonally. There's nothing magic or sacred about it. But it's where I go when I'm not sure what to preach on. And for some reason, these verses were given to be preached today. Which is an odd selection, I thought. Because today is the third Sunday after Pentecost. Pentecost was two Sundays ago. Pentecost, of course, is what happens following the ascension of Jesus to the Father's right hand where he is enthroned eternally and gloriously. And the Holy Spirit is poured out into the church to fill us so that we can be Jesus' continuing and ministering presence in the earth. But three Sundays after Pentecost, doesn't it feel like we should be reading verses and passages where the Holy Spirit is reaching through the early church? Shouldn't we be in the book of Acts? 
or the letters of the New Testament. And here we've been given a passage from the early days of Jesus' ministry. Pre-ascension, pre-Pentecost. It's a strange selection. But I have a theory. I think I know why these verses are set aside for this Sunday. The point we're to see is if Jesus didn't get dirty, touching dirty people in gracious ways, the church after Pentecost won't get dirty touching people like this either. If this is what the ministry of Jesus looked like, it is what our ministry is to look like as well. Mercy is the ministry of Jesus. It was mercy that hanged itself on a cross for sinners. It was mercy that went breathless in a borrowed tomb. It was mercy that came out of that same tomb three days later with a cosmic, eternal laugh. And our delight and our celebration and our enjoyment of Jesus is never greater than when we swim in His mercy and we hold it out to others who need it. The formerly sick, serving in the name of the physician who is making them whole and ministering to others who are desperate to be healed. Which I think, I think, is good news for us because it feels like the church is losing its way. It feels like we are forgetting who we are. Now, this isn't your doing, Bethel. You didn't create this. You didn't cause this. But we're all caught up in it. The church is quickly losing its resemblance to Jesus in these verses. And what we're becoming in its place is the people who are always right. We have the right positions and we will defend them vehemently. What we're becoming is the people who win the argument. What we're becoming is the people who win the culture wars. But if we look at these verses, if we look at Jesus in this passage, His ministry is very different. And there's a lot of ministry for us to imitate in these verses. I want to show you three things. First, Jesus doesn't argue. He doesn't argue. The Pharisees argue. The Pharisees always want to argue. The Pharisees are instigators. They're always instigating. And it makes sense. Because if you're busy arguing, you don't actually have to do anything. The Pharisees come and they want to argue. And notice how Jesus doesn't get trapped in the argument the way we get trapped. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody and you laid into it for all you were worth, but you walked away at the end of it and you're exhausted and you say to yourself, I'm not sure that did any good. Do you know why you feel that way? Because it didn't do any good. And Jesus doesn't get trapped that that way. And here's why. Instead of arguing with the Pharisees, He gives them a scripture to read. He gives them homework. Go look into this verse and see what you think it means. 
It's remarkable. He doesn't interpret it. He sends them to study. And the idea is, some of them may actually go read these verses and their hearts may be renewed. And he is being merciful to the unmerciful, saying to them, if you discover what these verses mean, you can come back to Matthew's dinner party and we'll pull up a chair for you. We'll seat you a place. You fit in well right here. You belong here. He didn't argue. He also didn't waste time trying to convince people who believe they're well that they're not. That they're actually sick. Which is where many times it feels the church is wasting energy and time this way. You're sick. You're sick. You're sick. You're sick. We yell it loudly and shrilly and with passion and animation. And it isn't working. And the reason it isn't working is none of us like to be yelled at. You don't listen when you're yelled at. I don't either. That isn't what Jesus does. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus says to people, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. If you think you're well, go be well. But if you're not, I am your healing. And he gives his attention and his effort and his ministry to them. And we should do the same. How will we find them? How do we find people who need mercy, desperate for healing? Ah, All throughout the passage, Jesus calls Matthew, Matthew follows, and he gathers other friends, other tax collectors, other sinners, a whole dining table of them is seated. And then the dinner party is interrupted. The desperate father comes and asks Jesus to come raise his dead daughter, and on the way to the man's house, the bleeding woman sneaks up behind him and steals her healing touch. And the end of the passage says, and the news of these things spread through the region. And the point is this. If we gain a reputation for being overflowing with the mercy of Jesus, those who need the mercy of Jesus will find us. There is no hiding it. If we are merciful with the mercy of Jesus, the people who need it will find it. Now listen, I'm not asking you to do anything drastic this morning, Bethel. That would be unrealistic and unfair. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to agree with these verses, particularly verse 13. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And if you can agree with that verse, then I'm asking you to do one more thing with it, and that is pray through it. Pray in it. You desire mercy, Lord Jesus. Make me desire mercy the way you desire it. Make us desire mercy the way you desire it. Make our hearts match yours. Make us long for mercy and to be merciful. And bring to us people to be merciful too. And when we fail, we will fail. When we fail, forgive us. And help us to grow and learn and increase in skill and wisdom and proficiency in these things and shock the community by it. Mercy doesn't make sense in our world. Arguing does. And accusing does. And culture wars do. But mercy is otherworldly. It's wild and welcoming and forgiving and extravagant. Mercy in Jesus' name is what draws hearts 
toward God. So use us like this. Use us to accomplish your delight to surprise the hurting with good news. That's all I'm asking. Agree with the verse. And if you can agree with it, begin to pray through it. And see what happens. And I promise you, you won't get dirty. The opposite will happen. In our church in Dallas, Texas, a woman started attending. Our associate pastor met her and her husband one Saturday when he was out in the community. He stopped in at a car wash, one of those self-service places. You drop coins in a slot, and a wand jumps to life with water and soap suds under pressure. And in the bay next to the one he pulled his car into, this woman and her husband were hosing themselves off. They were homeless. It was hard to see. So our associate pastor offered them help, and they accepted. And then he did this crazy thing. He did this reckless thing. He invited them to church. And she came. Her husband was uncomfortable, but she came. And she kept coming. She came every Sunday. She wouldn't stop coming. And she was a challenge for our congregation of successful families and singles and professionals. She didn't look like the rest of us. Her life had been hard, and she wore her hardship and her complexion and the skin of her face. She didn't dress well. She dressed as well as she could. Didn't smell as clean as the others in the congregation. She was missing more teeth than she had. She didn't fit. And oddly, her best friend in the congregation was one of the most affluent women in the congregation, one of the most mannerly, proper women in the congregation. And every week, there they were, those two women, Gail, the newcomer, and Joyce, her newfound friend. They sat together, singing together, sang the liturgy together, They would talk before the service and after the service. They had Bible study together between Sundays on midweek. Once we had a church picnic. We went to a ranch and everybody was out having fun on this beautiful fall Sunday afternoon. People tossing horseshoes, throwing the football, sitting at picnic tables, talking and laughing. And I looked up and there were Joyce and Gail walking arm in arm through the pecan trees in the grove. Walking back and forth. Endlessly talking. Later that afternoon, I turned around, and there they were, standing arm in arm, right in front of me, Gail and Joyce. And Joyce said, Pastor Gail wants to be baptized. And she stood there, smiling and nodding her head with a childlike glee I had never seen in an adult. So we baptized her. She wore a dress, she had herself all done up for the occasion. It was a beautiful, beautiful baptism. At our church, when we baptized children, I would take the newly baptized and walk the child through the congregation and hold the child out to congregants. They would smile and nod, and they would sing to the child a gospel lullaby as an announcement of Jesus' covenant promise and love to that one. Gail was in her late 50s, 
But this was a new birth, and I didn't know what else to do with her. So I put her on my arm, and I walked her through the congregation, and everyone smiled and nodded. And do you know they sang to her that same gospel lullaby? Jesus, let us come to know you. Hold us in your loving arms. Wrap us in your gentle presence. And when the end comes, bring us home. And I took her back to her seat. I kissed her on the cheek because I always kissed baptized children on the head. I kissed her on the cheek and I sat her down and there wasn't a dry eye in the house. It wasn't long after that. It was a Tuesday morning. We got word that Gail had died suddenly. Went to sleep, never woke up. The associate pastor came into my office. He brought the news and he stood there and sobbed, buried his face in his hands and sobbed. And I put my hand on his shoulder and said, you loved Gail well. And he said, no, I think Gail taught us all how to love. And we had a funeral. The whole church turned out. It was a wonderful celebration, sad as we were to say goodbye. She was a challenge for us, Gail. She didn't fit us. And yet, she fit us perfectly. She was just like the rest of us. She was one of us. And Gail didn't get us dirty. Through Gail, Jesus kissed us clean. And I hope the church... I hope Bethel Church and all the churches in Winsboro and churches we've never heard of before, churches that love Jesus and believe His gospel, my church back home in Mint Hill, Philadelphia Presbyterian Church, I hope the church will once again begin to fall in love with Jesus through His mercy. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord Jesus, You delight in mercy. Enlarge our hearts and shift our hearts to love mercy as well. Make us wildly joyful practitioners of it and glorify Your name through it. Bring others to faith and health and life through it. And increase our joy. And if you will do these things, we'll give you thanks for them all. We ask it in your gracious name. Amen. Would you stand as we recite the Apostles' Creed? Our God has been nothing but merciful to us, and the Creed is one of the ways we keep ourselves from forgetting, but we hold it in constant remembrance. So Christian, along with the church in every age and in every place, what is it you say you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You are not children, but the children's sermon applies to you nonetheless, and it's time for us to pack one more item in our suitcase for the long journey of faith. Our Westminster Shorter Catechism question is listed in the bulletin. It's question 70 this morning. I'll ask, and if you would, respond with me. Church, what is the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment is, you shall not commit adultery. And our God, who is always faithful to us, who never turns away from us, who never abandons us or betrays us, is always gracious and faithful to us, now calls us to celebrate His faithfulness by giving our gifts, our tithes, our offerings. It's yet another way for us to express our thanksgiving at the mercy we have received from the Lord. You may be seated if the ushers will come forward. Give joyfully, give gladly. The Lord is faithful. Our hymn of commitment is hymn number 457. Come thou fount of every blessing if you turn to that hymn and stand as we close our time of worship together.